Do turn in your Bibles this morning to Mark's Gospel, chapter 15. Mark, chapter 15. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. The crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, before we dive into this passage, uh, this passage reminds me of my first foray into the realm of acting. We were having the Christian Endeavor, National Christian Endeavor Convention in our town in Hamilton in Scotland. And uh, we put on a passion play for the delegates who had come, not the delegates, but the delegates who had come from all over uh, Scotland uh, for the event, and in fact, England as well. We let them in. and uh, the substance of my, of my part in the play was very straightforward. Uh, Jesus was brought in bound. And then we were to come in from stage left, which we did. And my lines were memorable. They were simply this. Crucify him. Crucify him. And there began and ended my successful acting career. <laughs> well, we laugh at that, uh, and, and it's funny. But those words, crucify him, were not funny when they were first uttered uh, in the passage as we see today. What we've been looking at is the steps that led to the condemnation and execution of Jesus. Jesus. 
We noted that the movement really begins a few weeks, we don't know how many weeks, before his arrest. There was a secret meeting of the Sanhedrin, the high Jewish council, where the high priest suggested that it would be politically expedient if Jesus were to die so that the nation and their place in the nation, their premier position in the nation, would be spared. We saw that without realizing it. The high priest actually authorized the idea that a man, Jesus, could take the place of the Passover lamb and actually spare uh, Israel from Roman terror. So that's where it began. Then secondly, after he was arrested, Jesus is subject to an all-nighter cross-examination by the religious hierarchy itself. This was not an official trial. There was no formulated charge at this point. The Sanhedrin had no authority to execute a capital sentence. At that cross-examination, they found Jesus guilty of blasphemy, which meant that the religious leaders, to a man, wanted him dead. But before that could happen, they would have to uh, adopt, adapt rather, the charge, which was a religious charge of blasphemy, into something that would look intelligible to the Roman governor. That was what they were about. So it brings us now to the third phase before his execution. Jesus is brought before Pilate. Brought before Pilate because only the Romans could carry out the death sentence. And so the authorities find a way of pitching their religious verdict of blasphemy in an overtly political form. So they reasoned like this. Jesus had declared himself to be the Messiah. The Messiah was, in biblical terms, a king, the king of the Jews. So he was making a claim to kingship. The claim to messianic kingship was illegal in the Roman Empire. It was therefore a political offense and one that could be punished by Roman justice and carried the sentence of death. That's what they have in mind when we read, as soon as it was morning, they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Who are the they in the story? The they has been clear throughout. They are the priests whose greed and selfishness Jesus had exposed. They were the scribes, that is, the theologians and teachers of Israel, whose ignorance of the Bible Jesus had reproved. These were the elders of Israel whose hypocrisy he had branded. And they were the Sadducees, whose empty philosophies and unorthodox doctrine Jesus had confronted. All of them were bent on his death. They had set up false witnesses to come and, and give evidence in the, to the cross-examination. These people who had been paid, encouraged, bullied perhaps into bearing witness came and gave their accounts, but their accounts contradicted one another. 
So much confusion arose from the different accounts that in the end, the authorities couldn't allow them to stand. Austin Farrer, the great Anglican, puts it like this. They were, they, the group I've mentioned, they were full of clamor while the king is silent. These were the powerful, but the king is defenseless. They were guilty. Their king, divinely innocent. They were the ministers of earthly wrath. Their king, the arbiter of divine retribution. It was these that took Jesus to Pilate as a criminal who deserved to die. It was the morning of Friday. This Friday was the day of preparation for the Passover feast. Later in the afternoon, right about the time Jesus himself died, in fact, the lambs would begin to be slaughtered for the evening feast, the Passover feast. And these men, to keep themselves ritually pure, these accusers would not enter the Gentile judgment hall, so they do their negotiating outside. And as you read the story, especially in John's Gospel, you see the invention of shuttle diplomacy begins here as Pilate shuttles from Jesus inside the judgment hall to the Jewish authorities who are at the gate and will not come any further. And he's going back and forth between them, uh, trying to find a resolution to the issue. In John, the, John's account of the story, he underlines the inherent contradiction between these men's attention to their cultic purity. They as Jews could not enter Gentile territory. And yet, their inattention to the matter of real inner spiritual purity. John also reminds us that the Passover meal had yet to be eaten and that the slaughter of the lambs was still to come, including the slaughter of the Lamb of God. So there are two, I think, main points in the passage. The accusers and the judge. We've already introduced in detail some of those who are involved. Who exactly were they? In the gospel accounts, we have different perspectives, and we need to face these, I think, in order to clear away misunderstandings sometimes when we read the story, the narrative. In John, he refers to the Jews. The Jews hand him over to, to Pilate. And when we read those words, the Jews, we must not read them through our cultural moment back into the past. Where we are at this cultural moment, we, we have still those who have a memory of the Holocaust and the death of six million Jews in the Second World War. And so for us, the phrase the Jews is something that we have to take with great carefulness and, and sympathy in our day. To read our cultural moment back into the past is a historical nonsense. It's an anachronism technical word for reading our current moment back into the past. So when John uses this word, the Jews, he doesn't mean Israel in general. 
He is not being racist. He's not referring to the Jews the way a Nazi would refer to the Jews. John was a Jew. Jesus was a Jew. This early on, the whole church was made up of converted Jews. In fact, as, as in the year 200, we reckon, in the year 200, 99% of Christians were converted Jews. The real movement among Gentiles really filling in the churches doesn't come into the 300s. There were Gentiles, but they were certainly not in the, they were in very much in the minority. Now, John, when he uses this phrase, has a very limited and precise group of people in view. They are the temple aristocracy that he has in view. All those that I mentioned earlier, the high priests, the scribes, the elders, and the Sadducees, that crowd. These are the ones that John has in view. Mark, however, adds another group. He uses a pejorative word, ochlos, meaning a mob, a gang, and it refers to the supporters of this man, Barabbas, who had been mobilized by the religious authorities to protest the arrest of Barabbas, even though he was arrested for murder. They wanted amnesty for Barabbas. And while they're out there demonstrating and arguing for his release, Jesus' people are invisible and silent. In Matthew's account, he refers to all the people. That could not refer to everybody in Israel, so therefore it must be taken as a generality. Everybody was at the game the other day. Everybody was at the ball game the other day. It seemed like that if you were trying to get along uh, the highway. But of course, everybody wasn't there. There were other people who were sadly missing it. Ratzinger puts it like this. This statement, all the people, is an attempt to account for the terrible fate of the people of Israel in the Jewish war when the land, the city, the temple were taken from them. It's Matthew who recounts the prophecy of Jesus of the end of the temple. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, killing the prophets, stoning those who are sent to you. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken. Jesus, in those words, is echoing Jeremiah's prophecy of the temple's destruction and Israel's exile. Jesus will promise a new covenant which will be sealed in his blood. So when Matthew refers to the whole people, when he tells us that the whole people said, his blood be on us and on our children, we're not to think that that caused a curse to fall on these people. We look at those words through the lens of Hebrews chapter 12. Jesus' blood speaks a different language than the language of the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel cried out for vengeance. The blood of Jesus never cries out for vengeance. It doesn't cry out against anyone. The blood of Jesus cleanses from sin. The blood of Jesus propitiates. 
That is, it turns away judgment from us. It delivers salvation to us and reconciliation with God, with one another. These were the people then who were accusing Jesus. Then we turn to the judge. We know who the judge is because we recite it. Every Sunday, suffered under Pontius Pilate. And we remember his name not so much to judge him as in order to fix a moment, an epoch. It it gathers up all the ecclesiastical and civil rulers before whom Jesus was brought in judgment. Pilate was the least guilty, writes Farrer, of malice and hatred. Pilate was the most anxious, if not to spare his agony, at least to save his life. Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea from AD 26 to 36, had been directly appointed by Rome to govern this minor province, which was under the supervision of the larger imperial province of Syria and its legate. He usually lived by the coast at Caesarea, but during the Passover, when there was this influx of pilgrims making their way to Jerusalem, making Judea as a whole volatile with the possibility of nationalistic civil war and strife erupting. During that period, he headquartered himself in the Praetorium, that is the official residence in Jerusalem. We don't exactly know where that was. It may have been Herod's own palace to the west of Jerusalem, or the fortress of Antonia built near the temple in the east of the city. From the time of the Crusades, the way of the cross, the Via Dolorosa, has usually begun where that fortress stood, but that doesn't really resolve anything. Pilate. Pilate had shown himself an efficient, brutal leader. He took seriously his duty to preserve public order in the province. But Pilate, like most of these governors, was astute enough to know that one of the reasons that Rome had been so successful in its empire, that one of the reasons why it had been able to grow so to be a global power and last longer than some of the other empires before them, the Greek and the Persian and the Babylonian, was because of their religious tolerance shown throughout their territories. Their religious tolerance was part of their contribution to the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. But this charge against Jesus was a serious one. You see, the Romans had no problem recognizing and legitimizing a local ruler like the tin pot ruler Herod, He operated, and all he was was a boss, really. He didn't have any real power. He operated with their permission and very much under their oversight. If he put a foot wrong, the whole might of Rome could come down on him. But this king, standing before Pilate, this king had no legitimacy and was therefore a threat to the Pax Romana. And what struck Pilate when he looked to Jesus was that he had neither attempted nor instigated an uprising. 
No record of him stirring up strife among the people. No record of riots, no record of petrol bombing, no record of him attempting a coup. In John 18, we're told that Pilate had nothing that would incriminate Jesus. He, he said that I have nothing against this man. I can find nothing wrong with this man. This man has done nothing amiss. Three times he excuses Jesus and calls him good. In fact, he was even asking Jesus. The chief priests have brought you to me and handed you over to me. Can you tell me what you've done? Can you tell me what you've done? These religious leaders were posing. Here's another thing that must have made Pilate think. He knew these religious leaders hated Rome, hated the Roman soldiers, hated him. And yet here they were pretending to have the defense of Rome on their mind and in their heart, accusing Jesus of treason without probable cause. Well, as the interrogation proceeds, we arrive at Jesus' own confession. Let me read it to you. This is from John's Gospel. Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this I was born, for this I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Just a bit earlier, Jesus had explained to Pilate, My kingship is not of this world. If my kingship were of this world, my servants would be fighting that I might not be handed over to the Jews. But my kingship is not from the world. You see what Jesus is saying to Pilate? He is claiming both a kingship and a kingdom. But he's telling Pilate that his kingship and his kingdom is entirely other than anything Pilate can imagine, anything Pilate has experienced. Utterly different from the kind of earthly power and rule that Pilate was exercising as an instrument of Roman government. His people, Jesus' people, don't fight. Jesus' people have no military power. Jesus has no legions. In fact, Jesus is saying to Pilate that he poses no threat and that he is utterly powerless at this moment. And Pilate could make no sense of it. could make no sense of it. And frankly, neither can some of us make sense of it. That's why from time to time in the history of the church, there have been those who have sought to try and establish Christianity as the prominent religion, the dominant religion, and have, sought, uh, have thought that by doing so, by gaining power, by gaining influence, by being able to impose the law of, of God, the Old Testament law on society and so on, uh, uh, that, that the church can somehow purify the world. What's actually happened when that's been the case is that the church has been influenced by the world, not the world so much as the church. Now, I'm not saying that there haven't been periods in Christendom, for example, when, when the church was used to bring education and, 
and uh, not only industrial and agricultural benefits uh, and medical benefits to the general population. They were, they did, they did all of that stuff. But Jesus is arguing here for a kingdom and a kingship that is counterintuitive, countercultural. The cry that I'm hearing from some quarters, usually little groups within, uh, within our country, for a renewal of Christendom, for example. They have absolutely no idea what they're, what they're asking for. We, just need, we need to listen to Jesus here. What are the surface marks of his kingdom and his kingship in this passage? No fighting and no power. Who wants that? Everything in us wants power. Everything in us wants the kind of days or once days in Scotland when the minister, if he walked down the street with his dog collar on, would have everybody kind of bowing and scraping to him. I wore my dog collar when I was... Dog collar is a clerical collar, by the way. <clears throat> Wearing your collar backwards. I used to wear it when I was uh, in my early ministry and uh, going to hospitals. And when it was visiting hour, nobody, what wasn't visiting hour, nobody else was allowed in. The minister could walk in anywhere, to anywhere, and be allowed in simply because he was a minister. Those were great days. I loved them. But those days are long gone. Ministers get no recognition by society. I remember in our school, the minister of the local parish church, a Church of Scotland minister, Presbyterian, would come, would come and speak to us at, in the morning when we were all ready before we went to class. And uh, he would say, good morning, boys and girls. And we would say in response, good morning, Mr. Ross. He had a, he had a wavy, we tried to imitate his he was really ancient. He was really, really old, probably my age. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Jesus, listen to what Jesus says here. Instead of being about power and dominion, Jesus' kingdom is about truth. Do you see that? I have come to bear witness to the truth. The fundamental category of Jesus' kingdom was truth, which is why the pragmatic Pilate asks the question, what is truth? I want to take a moment to look at this more closely. One scholar draws our attention to modern political theory and asks this question, can politics accept truth? as a structural category today. That is absolute truth. Or must truth today be something, that absolute truth, be something unattainable and be relegated to the subjective sphere, its place taken by an attempt to build peace and justice using whatever instruments are available. In other words, rather than seek truth what can we do to make people do, do this, to make people do that, or whatever, using the instruments available in order to exert power? Today, truth, I suppose, is subjective. There's my truth, there's your truth. 
when we are faced with this kind of dilemma, then unity, united action, in which we all are of one mind, is impossible to attain. If there is no commonly held criteria to guarantee real justice for all, then we're at the mercy of changing opinions and powerful lobbies. What is truth? Pilate's question. One of the doctors of the church, Thomas Aquinas, helps us here. Truth is conformity between the intellect, the mind, and reality. So when the mind perceives something that is real, this is a church building. My mind perceives that to be the case. Then that's a truth. That's true. It's not ultimate truth, but it is true. And on that principle, we can look at the world that God has made. We can see the world in its grandeur. And we can reflect on the fact that this world that has been made has been made by God who first imagined it and then made that come to pass. Thomas reflects, Jesus, when he says this, truth is in God's intellect properly and firstly, propriet prima. In human intellect, it is present properly and derivatively. So absolute truth is in God, absolutely. And when we come to know God, we get to know the truth, that is the absolute truth, ourselves, derived from Him. Thomas goes on, God is ipsa summa prima veritas. God is truth itself, the sovereign and first truth. God is sovereign and first truth. Now, it was Jesus gave that insight to Thomas. It's what Jesus means when he says that his purpose in coming into the world was to bear witness to the truth. The world we live in is a mixture of truth and lies or truth and error. It's invariably mixed up together. Somebody comes to court, their question. The, the business of the court is to discern what, what was true and what they said and what wasn't true and what they said. That's the way the world works. We listen to politicians speak. We listen to what he has to say. We were, or she has to say. We, we wonder what is true, what they really intend to do, or what is just there for filler or show or to get our attention. That's the world we live in. It's not bad. It's just the way it is. But none, none of those things lead us to the truth in all its grandeur <clears throat> and purity. <clears throat> I said earlier that the world is true. It reflects God, whose creative logic and eternal reason has brought it forth into existence. That's why we can study chemistry or, or physics and, we can, or, and mathematics. And as we, as we study these subjects, we see the form, the beauty, the order, the creativity, that goes behind the universe in which we live. The more we study these subjects, the more we know of the universe, the more we marvel at how intricate, well-designed this universe is. It's the way it goes. The more we know God, the more we see how clever, wise, and good He is. 
And we humans, we humans can become true. And we become more truly ourselves the more we are like God. The more we get to know God, then the more we become like Him and the more we become human because we were made originally in the image of God. Jesus then comes bearing witness to the truth. For him and for us, that means giving priority to God, to his will, swimming against the tide of the world's interests and powers. The coming of God's truth brings light. It makes creation intelligible. It brings the great and the mighty down from their high places. It exposes them. They're exposed by the truth. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Pilate may be a very important man, but Jesus shows himself to be the revealer of truth. His subjects, that is, Jesus' subjects, are distinguishable by what? They know the truth, and the truth sets them free. The truth sets them free. Pilate is put on the spot. Does he recognize the truth? Does he belong to the truth? I ask you, do you recognize the truth? Do you belong to the truth? What's the test of that? Jesus gives it to us in in the story. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to Jesus. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to Jesus. Very simple test. Do you belong to the truth? Do you recognize the truth? Will Pilate listen to Jesus? And the answer is sadly no. But he will listen to the threats of the Jews. They come up to him in John nineteen twelve, and they say, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. That was terrifying to a man whose whole position in life hung on Caesar's will. Pilate attempts to follow his conscience by offering the mob Jesus as a candidate for the Passover amnesty. He offers them a choice. Here's Jesus. Here's Barabbas the murderer. Jesus, with whom I can find nothing wrong, Barabbas the murderer, a terrorist. One of the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, we're told, called Barabbas. The temple hierarchy have already decided we do not want this king. That's what they mean. And you and I face the same choice this morning. We can either say yes to Christ, who's the truth, or we can try to seize upon something else, something tangible, more workable, more intelligible to our earthbound mind, something that doesn't require me to give anything of myself over to Jesus Christ. Will you be caught in the trap Pilate was? Even though Jesus was in his favor, he already held Jesus in favor. His feeble pride, his guilty conscience lead Pilate to take the path of least resistance. I mean, this is a man who knew the truth of the case. He knew Jesus was innocent. He knew he was being falsely accused. 
He knew there was absolutely no basis really for Jesus to die. He knew that. He knew that justice demanded a non-not guilty verdict. But on this moment, he did not work according to justice. He adopted a pragmatic view of justice that won the day. And only later would he find out that pragmatic justice is no justice. And the peace achieved by pragmatic justice will never, ever bring about true peace. We listen to Jesus' words to Pilate. For this I was born. He's not talking about his birth from Mary. He's talking about his eternal birth from the Father, his begottenness from the Father before all worlds. He had always been from the Father as the Son, always begotten of the Father. For this truth, I was born. And for this truth, I came into the world. There's Mary and the baby and Christmas, the incarnation, to be the king who would bring truth whose kingdom would stand for truth. Veritas. And only in finding Jesus do you find ultimate truth. Where do you find it? You find it in the church. The church is the pillar and ground of truth. The church will bring you to the Word of God, the Bible. It will bring you to Jesus' words. It will show you how under the Holy Spirit the church has read these words and treated these words and proclaimed these words through 2,000 years of its history. The pillar and ground of truth. It's the truth that will open your eyes. It's the truth that will set you free. It's the only truth that matters for eternity. So I ask you this morning, will you be like Pilate and find a way of just resolving the Jesus question by eliminating it from your mind, by squashing it down somewhere where it won't irritatingly come to the surface again? Or you consider today that he's brought you to church this morning to hear that he's the king who brings truth. And with truth, true peace. And with peace, true eternal life. Will you? Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts to you and give us, Lord, this morning a heart that looks to Jesus and listens to him, and in listening to him, finds life everlasting. In his strong name we pray. Amen.